Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Any reference to sectors, countries, stocks, or securities are for illustrative purposes only, and not a recommendation to buy or sell any financial instrument, securities, or adopt any investment strategy. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to TVP. This week, we are delighted to be joined by Joe Petta, and you are going to be equally delighted if you've been following along the cricket and rugby this autumn, because Joe is the author of Moneyball for the Money Set, using sport analytics to predict the returns of portfolio managers with startling accuracy. Before putting pen to paper, Joe started his career at Lehman Brothers and then stayed at Nomura after the Lehman collapse. He then moved over to the buy side, where he's been in a couple different firms doing a couple different roles, including Novus Partners, Kingsford Capital, and Point72. To chat with Joe, Andy Evans of the Value Team is joined by Robert Donald, who is the CIO of one of Schroeder's hedge funds. We invited him along as his quant skills were perfect for this interview. Robert, like Joe, started on the sell side as an equity analyst before moving to GLG Partners, where he ran a long short strategy before moving to Source Fund Management and then joining us at Schroeder's in 2017. In this episode, the trio will discuss Joe's method for breaking down performance into a way that assesses skill, including hit rates, explosiveness, magnitude, scaling, and sizing parallels with sport analytics and applicability for assessing skills for different types of investors, good arts law, manager's deficiency at sizing decisions, and finally, prediction tools and predicting power. Enjoy. So Joe Petter, welcome to the Value Perspective podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? Thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm uh, really anxious for uh, our conversation. Yeah, no, brilliant. Maybe we can start with you introducing yourself, you know, your background, your career, just going through how you got to the point of uh, writing a book. Sure. So uh, I started in the financial industry uh, in the mid '90s. I uh, wanted to. I was actually an accountant by trade, a CPA out of uh, university, and uh, but I wanted to go up to Wall Street. I was always fascinated by stocks and didn't really know what that meant to work on Wall Street, but uh, realized I had the best way in the states to to uh, have them come calling to you is to get an advanced degree. So I got uh, my master's and MBA and I started working for Lehman Brothers. I actually met Dick Fold my first week of graduate school and I was instantly sort of captivated by his story about what he was trying to do at Lehman Brothers. And uh, it was a great fit for me. Um, I started as a NASDAQ market maker. Uh, and after eight years, they asked me to come to San Francisco, move from New York to San Francisco and help launch a TMT fund under the, it's actually under the Newberger Berman umbrella, which was a, a wholly owned subsidiary by Lehman. And that got, that allowed me to move to the buy side from the sell side without ever leaving Lehman Brothers. I didn't ever want to leave Lehman. And uh, that went for about five years until the bankruptcy. And at that time, then I really started, you know, moving around. It's not something I wanted to do. I really, like I said, I wanted to work for one employer for 25 or 30 years. But as I started to moving around, um, the, the industry was changing and data was becoming a big part of it. And whether that was involving uh, traders or portfolio managers, I found myself starting to get immersed in data. Uh, I had an unfortunate accident in New York City working for a bank where I was in a wheelchair for uh, a period of time uh, with my family still on the West Coast. And that's when I got the idea to start writing down some of these thoughts. I saw a lot of critical reasoning overlap between asset management 
between the book and movie Moneyball and what was happening in professional sports and then sports betting too, another hobby of mine. And so that was really three interests coming together. Uh, and I wrote my first book called Trading Bases. And that led to a whole new career sort of in data analytics. Uh, I joined a, a company called Novus, which was a fintech in the data analytics space. From there, I joined a client. And from there, one of the very large uh, hedge funds in the US came calling that was familiar with my work and asked me to solve some of the problems that I write about in the book. And that's, that's really how, and I thought there was a story once, I thought there was a story in sort of letting people know, hey, here's what I've found over the last 10 or 15 years doing this. I think it's applicable to a lot more, you know, places than, than just where I've been. It's brilliant. Re- really interesting backstory. Thank, thank you for that. I'm also going to actually introduce uh, the co-commentator on the home team today. So uh, Robert Donald, he's an avid listener. He tells me so anyway. <laughs> and he's going to be uh, joining us because I think he has a bit of background um, in a similar sort of area. But maybe, Robert, can I give you a couple of minutes just to talk about your background? Sure. Thanks, Andy. I'm an avid listener because I find that the only time I get to enjoy the podcasts that that are out there in the market, but in particularly in the firm, is when I do gardening. So it's a good time to pretend I'm doing gardening in the eyes of my wife, but actually I'm listening to work. So the my background is um, I've done 15 years on the sell side. I started in corporate finance and I was a equity sell side research analyst thinking I was going to discover the answer to all future problems by being able to predict the future with certainty. And I actually worked at Schroeder's Equities in the mid-90s for a period. And then we were sold to Citigroup and being moved to an American institution and moved to Canary Wharf, an incentive to leave to go to the buy side. And I then went to the buy side and I worked at GLG, Longshore Manager, uh, at Soros and at Brumer. So I've been uh, an active Longshore Manager, also co-managed a large European Longshore Fund at uh, GLG. And I transitioned from that uh, to Schroeder's to build a multi-manager, multi-sleeve, market-neutral Longshore product. And um uh, we use many sort of uh, data points to appraise and select managers and some of the touch points that I believe that you've made, made in your book and your analysis with Novus are things that we often think about. So I was very happy to join Andy and be involved in this conversation. So thank you for inviting me. No, no, th- thank you very much, both of you, for, for joining us today. So Robert's going to play the role of of co-commentator, or I think colour commentator is what you call it in the States, um, which takes us nicely onto the subject of sports. And I think in your introduction, you kind of talked about uh, the combination of sports with data um, and with other aspects, and that also relating to, to asset management. I was instantly drawn to your book because data and sports are, are two things I'm very passionate about, and obviously uh, an asset manager as, as well. So maybe we can start by you talking about your book, which you've released fairly recently. So that's Moneyball for the Money Set. And just probably what what prompted you to write that book? Sure. Well, the, the, you know, actually writing the book was a result of putting all sort of the years of research in the field that I had done that I thought had started to overcome the long-running industry caveat of past performance is not indicative of future returns. Um, I thought some of the work that I had done was starting to break, you know, either had broken that code or was starting on the way that other researchers and practitioners could now pick up the baton and go much further um, with it. So I thought there was use in sort of laying out the work that I'd done. I wanted it to be exposed, frankly. Now, but there's another sort of question there too. It's not just why the book, but why going down that sort of path of research. And the idea that I could start using data came from the first buy side firm I you know went to within Lehman Brothers. Like I said, when I transferred out, I was working with a PM who was very, uh, he was an engineer by trade um, or by education. He was an expert in the semiconductor space and the hardware space, so a very logical thinker. And I started to see, you know, as you would from a trading desk when you start processing someone's, all their decisions and, and you see 
some of the behavioral finance issues that might come up in their decision making. I realized that I, while he was very skilled in some ways, he was eroding his skill uh, by uh, undertaking some actions that, you know, like I say, eroded his skill. So I knew I needed a way to communicate with him. And I had come from, you know, a market making background and on those desks, we just yell at each other, right? And, and and that wasn't going to be effective with my PM. So I needed a data-driven approach to try to get him to think about his decision-making and, and the whole process around decision-making and to really sort of identify, hey, you know, sir, this is what you're good at. Let's stick to, you know, let's stick to doing that stuff. And it was very crude metrics, but it got me thinking about, that process. And that's kind of what the book is about. It's sort of the result of starting from that very crude idea that there are data queries that can be solved that, and the problems are very similar to that as in sports, a data rich environment, highly compensated um, star performers within a large pool of other performers. And because the, you know, their data gets captured it can be, you know, we can use some of the same techniques. Oh, and of course, and the biggest one is there's so much noise that go into the final results, right? So sports, and specifically in my case, I had at the time the most knowledge about baseball. Baseball was able to separate that noise from results by focusing on skills. And that's really what I, that was the process I started down. And like I say, I thought this could be a helpful story and, and hopefully interesting to others in the field. That's great. Thank, thank you. Uh, separating skill from luck is definitely something we've discussed a lot on, the, on this podcast, and maybe we can come back to that a little bit later on. But it's probably worth you starting by, could you talk about some of the key takeaways from your book, um, in particular, some of the methods that you try to pull that skill from the luck or the noise when assessing performance? Right. So it really comes down to... Uh, well, I'll tell you what my overriding template became when I spoke with a head of one of the very large uh, multi-manager platforms. And he said to me that he had three problems that his quants weren't able to uh, answer. And you'll recognize these as noise and skill issues. The first one was, he said to me, anytime a PM has a good year, they come to me and ask for more money. Now, in this case, he wasn't talking about pay. He was talking about buying power or AUM, um, which, of course, the PM hopes translates into more pay. And he said, but how do I know if their prior year was repeatable? And he said, by the same token, and he was very frank, he said, we have let go or cut back some PMs on buying power. And he said, and worse, let go some PMs who went on to have very strong careers elsewhere. And he said, how do I avoid making that mistake when my risk department tells me, hey, this guy just, you know, you know he blew us up for a year. We got to get rid of him. And then he said, finally, he said, the third sort of question is, we're all trying to steal each other's talent. How do I know what a PM is worth going forward? I know what they're worth. I know what they've made me before, but what are they worth? And those three questions, I mean, they hit to the heart of what sports analysts attempt to do. And again, I'll use a lot of baseball analogies because this is what I was most familiar with initially and, and sort of thinking about that, that noise and skill. If you think about American baseball, you know, the picture is the, the picture's results. He's trying to stop runs from being scored, right? That you can look at the end of the year and the picture that allowed the fewest amount of runs you know, just mechanically had the most value to his team. But that result is subject to a whole bunch of different variables that the pitcher cannot control. He cannot control his opponent. He cannot control the ballparks he pitches in compared to others in the league. He cannot control the quality of the defense behind him, which has a lot to do with not giving up runs. And of course, then in turning his runs allowed into victories, he's dependent on the offense of, of his teammates. So that's why, while looking at runs allowed will allow you to you know, look back and say this was the value, it tends to be very non-repeatable from one year to the next, very noisy results. So what baseball 
analysts did was say, okay, we're just going to look at what the pitcher can control. All he can control is his strikeout rate, his walk rate, and his ground ball rate. And fortunately, those tend to be very persistent and stabilize very quickly in terms of figuring out what his future ground ball strikeout and and, uh, uh, walk rate are going to be. And it turns out multi-regression, variable regression, and you come up with a prediction of what his future runs allowed are going to be. And it turns out that process is much more predictive of future runs allowed than his prior runs allowed, which have so much noise in it. So that's what I I set out to find my ground ball, where I set out to look at PMs and find the ground ball rate, the strikeout rate, and the walk rate uh, equivalent for, for portfolio manager. And that's what I lay out in the book. The first half of the book is about my framework. And the framework really takes stock selection attribution and breaks it into skills. It breaks it into the uh, ability of a PM to consistently hold outperformers. And then it looks at what are the quality of his outperformers or underperformers versus, say, and all of these benchmarks are versus a skill-neutral performer. And that's very important and differs from a lot of the software packages that exist in the industry, you know, and sort of kick out stats on PMs. And then finally, there's there's uh, some other skills too. There's there's measuring of the sizing skill. There's measuring of the PM's ability to uh, manage net exposure and the PM's ability to manage gross exposure. But it's those first three, the consistency, the explosiveness, and the sizing, that are really the three skills that wholly determine or that can be used to determine the rate of alpha production of a PM. And I, you know, I used American baseball in there. It turns out, as I mentioned in the book, the much better analogy was professional golf. And that the strokes gain concept is what analysts use in golf. A gentleman, a professor at Columbia named Mark Brody, you know, has invented strokes gain and it breaks down prior performance into essentially three skills. There's a fourth, but the three main skills are, you know, driving ball, approach, and putting. And honestly, it was that framework that was the most helpful in, you know, that that's most similar to what I did in explaining how PMs, uh, what skills a PM has in producing or detracting alpha. I like the, this is Robert, I like the golf analogy, but when you describe it, I can understand the logic of sequencing from a driver to a fairway to a green. But how do you think of that then in the portfolio actions of a manager? Is that the initiation? Is that the sizing? Is that the the length of holding the position? I mean, how do you take that sequencing from golf into PM world? Yeah. So the nice thing about the golf analogy is those three skills are largely independent of one another you so you which intuitively makes sense right you know there's there are guys that are great drivers of the ball and not good putters and 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 all of those are independent you know once the ball gets on the green it doesn't matter whether it took the the pro golfer four strokes to get it there or six strokes to get it there now the measuring of putting is going to be independent from everything that came before it so my framework is similar it Robert, it starts by looking at a, it takes a look at a PM's, uh, these are daily measurements, by the way. So it takes a look at at a PM's portfolio on on a single day and gets gets everything benchmarked correctly and then determines, okay, so that for every PM that you'd be measuring, if it were a random PM or, you know, a million monkeys with a million iPhones with a million Robinhood apps on it, they would all, you know, they, they, the skill reading would be zero across across everyone. And so what it's set, what it's first thing it does is it, it asks is, or it measures is, can the PM, is the PM holding an outperforming stock within the universe that they are either forced to play in or choose to play in? So that it becomes market neutral, sector neutral, size neutral, um, et cetera. And that's the first reading. 
And what you find is it becomes a, a fairly strong leading indicator for alpha production. Doesn't guarantee that there's going to be alpha, but the PM who can consistently, um, and, and it's small amounts, it's almost like card counting in blackjack, having a 1% edge every day. If you had a hundred holdings and, you know, in the average, you know, within the universe was 50 and, and, and you're holding 51, you do that on a daily basis, you're going to create alpha that sure. compounds. And then of course, then the second step is, okay, we now we put all the PMs back on even footing and say, given the amount of outperformers or underperformers they have, what is the quality of those outperformers and what is the quality of the underperformers? In other words, are they identifying the best of the outperformers and avoiding the worst? And that is a second reading. And it turns out, I was skeptical when doing that, that it turns out that's the most important skill. It has the most value in terms of meat on the bone, because there's only so many outperformers you can hold. Nobody can hold 100% outperformers. And nobody can even hold 60 you know, it, 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 uh, it, over you know daily readings. But there's a lot holding the correct you know, explosiveness um, turned out to be a key point. And when you think about process of a PM, it seems, uh, this seems to be the consensus of the people I worked with, that the first step is sort of measuring the science of portfolio management. And the second step is sort of managing the art because there is some aspect in the explosiveness reading that a PM recognizes the correct timing, whether it's sentiment um, or, or whatever, market factors. You know, there's an art to, as you know, there's an art mm -hmm. to being a PM. And it seems to be that this, this skill, uh, is th that skill is somewhat captured by the explosiveness uh, uh, reading. Uh, and then finally, there is a sizing uh, component, which is largely mechanical, frankly, um, although the, I think the findings are are interesting, uh, and then it, and that comes to the rate of alpha production. And as you say, it's simple, it's elegant in that it is additive from one period to the next. It's the same formula for whatever period you're choosing, um, and it. But the most important part is once you have those three skills measured and identified. Because frankly, this is just a, another attribution uh, mm. system. But it turns out because their skills now like golf, now we can look at the persistency. And as you may know from golf data, you would much, you know, two or a number of golfers can finish a tournament, say, at, with the same score, eight strokes under par, you know, and beating the field by four strokes, all of them, because the average was minus four. Well, it turns out the way you get to minus eight is very important in determining how you're going to project, project that golfer to do going forward. If they got to minus eight by having the hottest putter, you know, if six of those eight strokes were contributed by putting and you look at another golfer and his contribution came from iron play, six strokes came from iron play. Well, he is much, much more likely to repeat that performance next week than the person with the hot putter and the driver fits somewhere in between those two. And that was the key that, that really was the breakthrough insights that turned my framework into a predictive model. So just related to that. So I understand the sort of the hit rate, the explosiveness, and then the sizing. How do you think about sizing in the context of I'm talking in stockland for a second, away from golf. But if you look at a, an individual stock and it has a standalone perceived risk profile because of its vol, um, and you've got a collection of stocks and you really have high conviction towards something and you think it could be explosive, but the standalone volatility of it could mean that it can go against you as much as for you. How do you then think about adjusting the sizing? Because they may have chosen to have a low sizing to what is a high vol stock, even though it's potentially very explosive, because they would be carrying too much risk in that name if they oversized it and it went wrong the other way. Yeah, Robert, that's absolutely right. And I only make, uh, I, I make, I make, I acknowledge that in the book. I don't go a 
bought into it. But in practice, I have looked at that a lot. And you're absolutely right. Part of the PM sizing decision is not just conviction. It's a risk management decision as well. And without question, they are effective at that. And how I've measured that at a number of different places across dozens, if not hundreds of PMs, is that um, the sizing, of course, the the uh, skillless person, if they had a 40, 40 position portfolio, would just make everything two and a half percent, right? So that's where you can say, hey, did your sizing help or did your sizing hurt? Sure. And it is true that if you equally weight as a population, all of the PMs that I've looked at, their sharp ratio would decrease if they, it, in other words, the the risk adjusted the effectiveness yep. of their sizing does mildly increase their sharp ratio. It's that that's true. So the risk component, uh, the risk management component that's going into sizing, you know, is is valid. And to that end, you know, I, I just had a a PM give me that exact exact example of you know holding Microsoft versus like black box, right? Yeah. They they can't possibly have those equal because it would you know it would change the risk profile. Because to say the obvious, one now, of the one of the motives of managers is to also survive and to retain client capital. And coming back to the analogy of your manager who wants to get paid, he needs to know he's got a job next year and he's got a reasonably sticky amount of capital. So the risk management is also to manage their career. No question. No question, Robert. And that's where, unfortunately, that can have, that can mean that the LPs have a, you know, that's that's the tension, right, between what's best for the LPs and what's best for the actual manager from a, a career risk. And I actually do have a story in the book about two PMs. They were young. This was going to be their first payday. This is an actual case of, you know, that act, yeah. that conflict in terms of allocating capital. They were they wanted to protect their lead. And that's just it's a very real situation. Yeah. And it's something to, you know, that everyone needs to be aware of, right? From management to, you know, to the to the PMs themselves that are managing, as you say, their careers. I know Andy's got a question burning, but just one thing in my mind that you've stimulated my thinking around is, you know, and I come from a long short background, and I have a great deal of respect for long short as a skill set. And, but when I think about long only, I think that. The jury of the market is quite punishing for a long early manager in the sense that not only do they have to select well, but they also have to be mindful of what they haven't chosen to earn, which is going to punish them because it's in their index and in their benchmark. Whilst with a long short manager, he's only going to be punished or she for what they do own on the long side and what they're short on the, the other side. And it's all about dollars that they're making. But for the long early manager, not only are they mindful of how well they're doing on their sizing and their selection and their hit rates on their longs, but it's also the unintended consequences of what they don't own. And we've seen this year, for example, some very significant uh, bear squeezes in the market uh, where 20-bit, 30-bit names in an index have gone up 300% in a month because a lot of um, social media, Instagram influencers have pushed uh, certain EV or battery names in certain regional markets. And the long any manager can just look like a turkey around that when in fact it was never in his uh, or her uh, radar screen of their selectable universe. Yeah, again, you're talking about inefficiencies within the, you know, within the investing universe that are not the PM's fault. It's, uh, you, you're absolutely right. And I will tell you all my skill measures are based on the PM's universe. You're right. If they didn't, if they're, but that's not necessarily fair to them. But what this framework hopefully does is in the hands of a skilled allocator or skilled investor, they would know not to punish the PM for that. But you're right, doesn't make the PM you know, feel better about their career risk if their investors are not that, you know, patient or thinking. insightful. Yeah. It actually ties in nicely with the question, and it comes back to the sports analytics side of things. So if you were going back to your baseball example, you, you wouldn't choose to analyze the performance of a pitcher the same way you would as a batter or in football terms in, in Europe it wouldn't be the same for a goalkeeper versus a midfielder versus a striker and to Robert's kind of point before 
it, looking at long short could be very different from analyzing, for example, a, a long only value manager. So how have you thought about um, how appropriate some of your assessments of skills are for, for different sorts of, of, of managers? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and, and let me let me really go to the, the sports analogy part of it first, and I, I will try to keep it to uh, uh, worldwide football. The You are correct in that the metrics that you would use to evaluate uh, you know, uh, midfielders versus strikers versus goalies are very, very different. But all of the metrics you're using are designed to be able to compare each of the players or each of the positions to their value in winning a game. Uh, in, in other words, uh, yes, look, Kevin De Bruyne is a – uh, is an elite midfielder because of his ability to to pass the ball and complete passes, right? Whereas a Harry Kane and a Erling Haaland are elite at finishing, right? It, it, and your a Jordan Pickford is, you know, his value comes from not allowing goals. So all of that, you would only measure De Bruyne against midfielders. You measure your strikers against other strikers, and you measure your your goalies against the goalies, and, and in some ways there's no comparison. But what you do come out with in the end is how much a midfielder contributes to a, a team's you know goal differential at the end of the year, how much a striker does and how much a, a, a goalie does. And in that sense, how whatever final metric you're coming to, in that sense, that is a very efficient metric. And not necessarily in getting each player right, but getting the value of each position right. And we know that because the contract market and the transfer market um, is going to be efficient over time because there's a lot of money going into it. And, and you know, we know that, you know, the best goalie is not going to get paid what the best striker are because the striker contributes more to the win. Um, and in that way, I think of the skill, you know, my work is consistent with that in that it is, and I really go in the beginning of the book, I really talk about the importance of benchmarking. And I talk about how the standard software stuff you get, whether it's batting average or slugging percentage, it's worthless. And, and I, I hope I go into the book and explain why it is virtually worthless as a data point. Because sort of to what you're saying, it's not comparable, right? You're, it, it's it's not comparable to the universe which that each p the unique universe that each PM might be residing in. So you get to a value manager or a value long only manager. You pointed out, um, yes, the majority of my work, and fortunately because that's where the majority of the data is too in in terms of the industry. Um, has occurred uh, within multi-strat um, firms and specifically on the long-short equity platforms, right? So, and and I do, I don't spend a lot of time dwelling on this in the book, but at one point I do point out that each PM, like on a multi-manager platform, I am doing a separate both framework and projection on both the long and the short book. So that if there's 50 PMs, I actually have 100 projections. So the 50 PMs, I'm, you know, there's 50 long only projections, and there are absolutely value managers within, you know, long short market neutral hedge funds. There are absolutely managers that run, you know, value long, and there's there's skeptical PMs everywhere, and they're value long and and growth and momentum short, and they're. There, there's no difference as long as you have them properly benchmarked, you can get different skill readings that then become comparable to other PMs. And in that sense, a utilities PM who is equally skilled to a consumer PM will never be as valuable. It's it's just because of the universe, just you know, similar to strikers and, and goalies. Um, so in that Sorry, sense, Joe, is a, that because a, the dispersion? Sorry, is th that point about a consumer, yeah. is it the lack of dispersion, yeah, dispersion within utilities? Okay. Dispersion is the major one, and I think you would also say um, that there's there's more volatility as well, right? Because essentially utilities is – you can't have growth, right? The growth element is essentially – It's more regulated space. Of, right, it's a regulated industry, so you're more, it's more of an interest rate play, but exactly. 
Okay. Uh, but dispersion is, and I spend a whole chapter uh, in the book, um, you know, called Hidden Figures, because I do think that dispersion is not studied enough um, or calculated enough um, at the, you know, at the specific sector or universe levels. And that's all in the model and the framework. So, yes, I believe it works just now. I will say this about a value only, say, long only manager. The my work depends on capturing PM decisions, right? And most now, this is where we might have a difference in terms of what PMs do on a daily basis. In a pod market neutral long short platform, generally the PMs are very active in terms of their decision making. They they trade a lot, right? The, the positions change. And I am capturing each of those, which helps, you know, it, it, it has a more robust look at what the PMs actually does. If there is a long only value manager who simply holds 30 names at the beginning of the year and holds the same 30 at the end of the year, there's really not much to read there. Right. Um, I can get I'll get the same readings, but it they almost certainly I would expect not be as robust in terms of persistency from one period to the next but Joe, because it, I'm not measuring sure. their decisions. To come back to maybe Andy's question, but to bring in your experience there, isn't it all about looking at the value manager versus a value universe uh, and seeing how good they've been relative to what that value universe was rather than the broader market? Uh, and actually, a colleague of mine just before coming up here highlighted, and I don't know whether this data point is correct, but uh, with respect to him, I'll assume it is. And that was that apparently Warren Buffett actually has quite a low hit rate on his ideas, but he's got the passage of time and the quantum of the returns on the ones that do come right. So he may have a less than 50% hit rate, but the sheer length of which he holds and the compounding effect of that and the quantum of the compounding means that he's quids in. Um, over the performance. So Robert, that, I'm going to say, I, I touched on that exact claim about George Soros in the book. The that gets advanced, and I you do hear similar things about Warren Buffett, but I have specific, I specifically address the claims that George Soros, and it's been made by an ex CIO of his, has a 30 percent hit rate. It is not possible. It is not possible for that to be even remotely true. And I lay out why in the book mathematically. I also suspect that same narrative gets applied to, to Warren Buffett. And I, I think that Warren Buffett is a better stock picker than hitting under 50%. I, I would love to, you know, to do that work. You know, Warren Buffett is obviously constrained from sizing for a lot of reasons sure. uh, in terms of measuring his, his sizing. But it is very hard, as I point out in the book, it is very hard to have a consistently, meaningfully below average hit rate um, and make up for that with either the passage of time or explosiveness. Um, and But that it's, it's certainly I, I, worth I, you know, If I could just chip in there, Andy. I mean, I respect that comment greatly. So when I was at GLG running a long short strategy, we had all this in analytics done of, a, done of us in the mid 2000s. So I'm talking about 2005, 2006. And uh, I actually came up with a very, my strategy and somebody else's strategy were compared. So I was a boring fundamental stock picker and I had a particularly successful high hit rate, but I was too scared with running my winners too long. And I was quite quick at taking down my losers. But I ended up with a very nice return. But I could have done a lot better if I just ran my winners longer. Uh, the chap next to me, a guy called Marcus, who was a Goldman Sachs trader who came onto the platform, he had a less than 50% hit rate. But he was super quick at taking off his losers. And he was super good at sizing and adding to his sizing of his winners. But his average holding period was very short around specific catalysts. So he made enough on those wins and sized them up as they started to traction, uh, but he was very quick at taking them off. So I have seen people, certainly over a three to six year period, I'm not saying beyond that, do actually quite well with a low hit rate. How much AUM was he running? 
Well, that was a great point. So he didn't run, he ran hundreds of millions, not billions. And just to just to add a little bit of color to the story. So I used to invite him to all these company meetings the whole time, and he never came to any of them. And I said to him one day, I said, Marcus, why is it I invite you to all these meetings, but you never come? You know, where's your edge? Aren't you going to miss out on the color of the companies? And he said, no, 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 no. All my edge is sitting in this room because what I do is I watch all of your positions and I see how you're behaving and I'll exploit that. So he was very good. And those were the days, which isn't the case in the millenniums and the Balayasnes today, but back in the day, we had a lot of transparency within all the different sleeves. So he, his edge was watching other people in the building and how they were trading and where the crowding was. And he was exploiting that. Uh, I didn't have time to go and look at what other people did. I didn't really care what other people did. I just wanted to build my quarterly model and understand who was going to be the next results meeting. Anyway, his process was different and it worked for him. But yes, he didn't have a lot of capital, but he was very mobile with his capital. Yeah, and I talk about that. I've had this discussion in depth with Michael Mobison. Um, and in terms of, you know, what, what the claims about Soros could be. And, and we certainly agree that there are, you know, you touched on it right there, right? Uh, watering, you know, watering your flowers and cutting your weeds is a very wise way to invest. And there are certainly investing uh, swing traders. And like you say, your, your, your colleague there may not have even known what the product was of the companies he was <laughs> trading, right? He was trading stock symbols and charts and technicals. No question. That is an absolute formula that exists to make money. It's usually not scalable to the billion-dollar firms. And within the platforms now, there is almost no one that does practice that, that type. Because, And I do make the pains to talk about institutional quality investing that exists today versus exactly sort of what, you know, you're describing more what somebody could do with their own 20 or 40 or $60 million portfolio. This tangentially brings me on to something I was thinking about as we read through your book, and and that that was Goodhart's law. So the idea that as soon as you start measuring something, it becomes a target, and it ceases to become a, a good measure. And so coming back to Buffett, he talks about it in terms of watching the scoreboard rather than than playing playing the actual game itself. So I, I did wonder if you start getting judged by these metrics, do you then start changing what you're doing? So to let's take Robert's trader, his. Uh, his friend who sat next to him, if you turn around and say, well, you've got to get your hit rate up, that could destroy the whole way that he, um, he he makes his money at that point in time. So could you talk a little bit about that, the kind of issue of if this were to become the way that you judge people, then suddenly it could destroy the way that some people make their, their money? Absolutely, Andy. And again, a very thoughtful question and something that I hope um, I've been thoughtful about over the years. The, In fact, in the very first book I wrote, you know, I talked about the, and I, I'm not exactly sure of the wording of, of Goodrich Law, but there's also that the whole principle of the high, uh, the Heisenberg principle that what gets measured gets changed, right? Yeah. Or even, you know, you, same, you can even apply to like Jane Goodall, right? Once you yeah. start observing nature, you're changing nature. And the, I, I spent a whole chapter in my first book, Trading Bases, called, and the chapter was called Managing to the Wrong Metric. And it's, I took a whole bunch of different examples in different industries and some that didn't even involve, you know, data per se, and just compare, and, and they sort of ranged from the infamous Barron's cover in 1999 or 2000, the Amazon.bomb cover, right? And, you know, talked about how they were looking at the wrong metric, right? And at the same time, the Baseball pictures in America or baseball managers in America, they shunned using their best picture unless it was a, quote, save situation. And a save is a metric that goes on that gets attached to each picture. And, you know, there it was just simply instead of trying to win the game and using your manager at the most or your best picture at the highest leverage point of the game. They were always saving that picture for the last inning because then it was a save situation. So I'm very uh, aware of that that pitfall. Here's a point of pride in the framework that I've developed. I don't think it can be gained. Um, and in that sense, when you talk, and, and this is why I said that hit rate and slugging percentage as traditionally calculated are worthless. 
for one thing, they can be easily gained. Just like your, you know, uh, just like we talked about your old colleague there, you absolutely would have an incentive to not realize losses until they became, you know, become a couple basis point winners and then sell them, right? Sell it something anytime it's up and you're going to help your hit rate. At the same time, slugging percentage is even worse. There's even a, a, a more perverse incentive if you're trying to manage the slugging percentage because slugging percentage traditionally is simply the average of each winner over the average of each loser. And you can tell if you want to improve your that ratio and therefore your slugging percentage, it would be helpful to move a winner into the loser category as long as it's a very small loser. Because now you've got a small denominator, which would increase the ratio and therefore increase the slugging percentage. So, I, like I say, it's a point of pride that you can't me- – like I give acronyms based on American baseball players to my to – the, to the readings in, in the, the book. The Carew um, is the first reading and Aaron is the second reading. The only way to increase your Carew or Aaron – is to pick more winners. Like so, like if you're trying to game it, you're going to have to be better at your job. Um, you're going to have to exhibit more skill to game that. So in that sense, uh, I don't think that problem exists. Uh, you know, with my framework. Just one thing I could uh, maybe interested in your response, Joe, to this. But um, you know, we observe a lot of managers in this building and how they trade and how their performance is. And one area that we've spent a lot of time looking at is their execution of new positions versus their existing portfolio. And we find that invariably the hit rate on new positions tends to be consistently higher than on the residual portfolio. And there is a opportunity set to take advantage on that. There is also some sizing experience and observations that we see whereby it's a human instinct to be maybe cautious at first and therefore size up moderately and wait for confirmation signals, wait for catalysts to reaffirm and then size up further. And there's quite a lot of PL left on the table by the manager who's not aware of A, that their hit rate is disproportionately better on their new positions and that their sizing is slower than it could be and that they can then actually add to their performance and but also coming back to your point about the gardening analogy, sometimes it's good to prune the residual portfolio and clear out some of the other stuff to create that freshness. So I guess my point was that in some data you do want to share with the manager so he's aware of those things because that is constructive. But then there are other things that we look at where we don't want to tell the managers about because we can't utilize it or take advantage of it consistently because if we show them certain things then they might change their process and then that will dilute the ability so i do believe that there is value in the this issue about the good art law and measuring and that changes behavior and that actually loses your edge Um, but in some cases you need to let the guy know or the woman know what their missed opportunity is and how they could do better than they are because that is only accretive to them and to you in what we do. But there are some mistakes that they make that we don't want them to change because we can take advantage of that. Mm. I, th- I think that actually probably ties in with something you, you you write about in the book, which is if you look at sizing decision, decisions or scaling decisions uh, across the managers that you've seen, it, it doesn't actually add anything. You, you would actually recommend most people to equal weight. Is, it, is that what you found? Yeah, that's a bit simple. Yes, but it's a bit simplified. So I will amplify on that a little bit. And all I can say is what Robert just said, I was nodding vigorously to each point that he was making. Those are consistent with what I have found. And Robert, I sat in an internal alpha capture division doing that work. So of course, we were very interested in what you know we could capitalize on. And there's no question about alpha decay in terms of the initial starting point. And it's in terms of the sizing of the position, and this gets right to sizing. And the signal, the strongest signal from talented PMs is the inclusion in the portfolio. So the idea of scaling it, that's the that is the money-making yeah. signal. So Definitely. the idea of scaling into a position is folly. And the I I have a, a Robert, I have a story in the book about how, fortunately, I learned that lesson at the hands of uh, Dr. William Sharp, 
when he was a professor of mine of the sharp ratio, when he was a professor of mine when I was in grad school. He And, and I won't ruin it because I think it's a fun story in the book, but he absolutely made all of us in the class, including me, look foolish with that exact decision to to uh, size into a, a position. In, in his example, it was an inheritance. And I, I think it's a fun example in the book. And it it certainly changed my behavior, the way I thought about things. So then going also to more the more sizing discussion, the finding is this. If you have sort of like when I talked about putting before, although, of course, there are skilled putters, but the sizing, it's not that sizing can't contribute to alpha, right? It, it always will. It will always be a part of the formula. There's two things. One, it will almost always have the smallest impact because institutional quality investing generally does not allow for a PM to make a position, a 25% position. And that's what it might take to truly add a tremendous amount of alpha to the equation. So in general, when you're talking about sizing in, in an institutional quality portfolio, you're talking about a PM who has stuff ranging from 1.5% to maybe 7.5%, right? And what the, there's two findings that came out of it, and they are so strong across so many PMs. And that is whether they added or detracted with their sizing decision versus equally weighted one year had no effect on prior years. In other words, it revert, it strongly reverts back to the mean of zero. And the so these so the find so it's not that they can't create alpha with with uh, sizing. It's that if they did, that's not the repeatable portion going forward. And the same is with detraction, though. You find a PM that is, you know, makes two basis points a day in Carew and two in, in Aaron and is losing one sizing. That next one, it's going to be additive the next year when you start looking at a, uh, you know, a, a projection model. The caveat to that is this, though. If the PM has less than two dozen positions, and that's a bit arbitrary, it's, it's based a little too much on an eye test of mine as opposed to a rigorous uh, uh, statistical analysis. But in general, the PMs that I did see that had sticky persistency in terms of adding out, al- you know, in terms of alpha being an additive element of, or sizing being an additive element of their alpha, they had very concentrated books. And I believe that that is a factor of the human mind. The human mind, I don't believe, can rank 70 ideas. I know, you know, because there's too much art that is in and too much noise that comes into to uh, equity returns. And that's why it's mean reverting. And that's why I say in the book, and I borrowed a quote from someone in a firm I did not work with, uh, but would have been a competitor when I gently, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to give away my secrets. And I, I gently was saying that, sizing tended to revert. And he kind of cut me off and he laughed and he said, Joe, we tell our PMs that if they spend more than, if they spend 90 seconds thinking about sizing, they've wasted 60 seconds. And Robert, to his point or to their firms, uh, the way that their firm looks at things, they don't care if a PM is, you know, is suddenly adding a ton of beta to the portfolio because they undo that at the top. So what they want the PMs to do is essentially go ahead and equally weight your Microsoft and your black box. We'll take care of what that does to your, you know, expected volatility, your expected beta, because all we're paying you on is your idiosyncratic alpha, right? Um, so that's that seems to be a consistent finding that, uh, and and I think the reason is, is that, oh, it, 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 underscoring also that idea about how too many um, too many positions mess up the ability to to rank correctly uh, or efficiently. We definitely did. I did not do this work, but it was done within my firm. And the, they had access to what was called analyst ranks, right? The analysts would rank their universe. The analysts tend to only model six to eight companies, and they tended to be in-depth. And they tended to be very good in terms of their conviction by position. And it was up to the PM then, you know, then that was that would be another measurement reading we had for the PM. How good were they converting 
how good were they at converting their analyst work into what actually went into the portfolio. But again, it sort of underscored, it's the number of positions that inhibits the human mind from, you know, having any sort of, uh, you know, effectiveness in ranking. And if I could just add to what Joe's saying there, just two quick things. One is, um, we have done a lot of work looking at the success rate of analysts versus the follow through from PMs. And there's some very interesting insights, which we've shared with a number of the heads of desks. And um, there's a, a lot of rich value in what um, Joe's just referred to. And we do see some interesting paths that differ between analyst prowessness versus manager follow through. The other thing I just wanted to mention was, and I'm just smiling because I guess this isn't going to go to the outside world too much, this broadcast. But so I, when I worked at Soros, um, I was talking to somebody about this just the other day. When I worked at Soros, I was a bit taken back by the lack of sophistication of the risk models at first, because the risk model, the portfolio model would only allow you to have five positions. And I was a, a PM in equity land with 35 to 40 positions. How the hell was I going to know what my risk was and my sizing and and uh, and I didn't really understand why the system was so narrow. And then somebody pointed out to me later that George really only thought there were two or three things at any point in time that really mattered. And his whole view was that you should only have three or four high conviction ideas in the portfolio at any point in time and everything else is noise. And you should be forced to only hold two or three things and focus in on them because that's how you'll make big returns. Uh, and then in the firm, it became clear that... Uh, you would lose your job for either um, taking too much risk and making a mistake, or being right and not taking enough risk. So you're you're suffered you suffered either way. But anyway, the point of the story was that actually only being focused, forced to focus in on those two or three things at one point in time is where you got eighty percent of your returns. Uh, and he forced people to do that by narrowing how many holdings they could have in their risk view. Yeah, that's a great theory. I, I can tell you. You know, right? We know that I work for a very, uh, you know, well-known head of the firm, and it always used to be said that the most effective portfolio that he could give to his LPs, and of course, he would be the largest LP, would be to have his fifty managers just have one long and one short. He would have a diversified portfolio of 50 by 50 things, right? But it goes to what you said earlier about career risk. That would be the most effective portfolio probably for for the firm and the LPs, but it would be the most high risk in terms of career risk for each of the PMs. So you wouldn't get people to sign on to that. We're getting towards uh, the end end of our time. Um, Before we go to the signature question, just want to ask one thing you you wrote in the book, and I think you, you said it at the top of, of the podcast as well, that some of the reason for writing this book was that you wanted this these ideas exposed to the, the outside world and, and to be open to constructive feedback. So I'll be interested in what the the best or most frequent feedback that you've had on, on the system that you describe in the book. Yeah, the, the feedback. Um, and yeah, let me touch on a, a, a certain point of that too, in terms of why I wanted to expose it. It surprised me because I grew up on a trading desk being a market maker for hedge funds that were whipping stuff around all the time. I didn't know what went on inside the modern, whether it's Millennium, Valley, Asni, Citadel, the old SAC, 0.72. I traded or made markets for all of them. It was a surprise when I got inside the firms to realize that in the modern sense, they are allocators. The head of the firms are allocators because they have so many managers. Their job is essentially to try to give capital to most effective PMs. And of course, there's turnover too, right? They do get rid of the ones that, that they don't that don't perform. In that sense, I realized they were performing the same role as my favorite clients at Novus and at who. We had who I marketed to and and at one of the other hedge funds I was at, which were like endowments and pensions, right? That's what they're doing. They have de facto multi-manager platforms. And I was never really pleased with how they performed manager selection. 
this book was a sort of aimed at them as an audience as well to like, hey, here's what goes on inside the really sophisticated allocators, even though you think of them as multi-manager hedge funds. And I think it can help you as well. So that that also kind of touches on who I was aiming the book at. Um, as far as the pushback, allocators don't like to be told that they don't do manager selection well, right? Because, you know, they spend so much time doing it. Nobody likes to be told that, you know, fear of change is a very real thing, right? Narratives get get uh, um, embedded for for a reason. Um, so I think that there's a little bit pushback there um, in terms of, you know, career risk. We're going to, you know, we're not going to change, Joe, just because this you know, just because you think you've got you've built a better mousetrap or or th there's some innovation. Um, so, I, you know, some I've certainly gotten some some pushback from allocators as to whether there's any real value here uh, that they can apply. But from the actual, in, you know, at the PM level, um, the questions always come back to sizing and they always say, hey, my my best position did do better last year. And I'm like, OK. But remember, when you're judging that, you have to judge your smallest positions, too. Um, they have to all have done better to to you know make it. And, and I'm not saying that you should start every position equally weighted. What I'm saying is spend a lot less time at it. You know, let's start them equally weighted and just let them run a little bit. And said, so I get the pushback on the sizing, and I certainly get pushback on the idea of daily measurement because PMs will say, "I don't care what happens on a daily basis. We, I want to know what you know." judge me quarterly or yearly. And that is fair, right? You, you wouldn't make any decisions on a manager based on, on what, they, what they did in a single day. But what I found, and, and they will always tell a story, and I have one chapter in the book about this. They will tell the story about their stock that languished for nine months of the year and then you know, either passed a, a FDA trial or got taken out or something. And they will say, they will say I was early, but right. And, and that's right. And it's, a, and they, they're right. And that's an emotionally satisfying result for a PM, but it's not repeatable. And I try to go into the book and the why that is. And that's where the daily readings come in. It's not making a decision based on how they do on a single day but it's gathering a data point that ends up in a series that has starts to have use after six months with a strong, you know, regression to the mean to fill in the, you know, the, the, the missing observations. But once you get to two years, you now have 500 data points and, and many PMs are only giving their allocators a quarterly PDF, right? So I've got 500 data points versus eight data points um, and you can get a lot of insights into those 500 data points because hopefully, like I say, I'm measuring skills and have determined that the skills have some stickiness outside of noise. Um, so that's the pushback. I love, I, I love the discussion. I love when people are skeptical about the predictive nature of the work because if they weren't skeptical, then if it's proven to be true, then it has value, right? Because if, if they weren't skeptical to start, then it's just something people already know. So that's that's the part I love. And what I tell people is we have old data. Like if you have a lot of data, um, give me give me the PM data from 19, you know, 2019 and 2020. Uh, and I'll tell you how they do in 2021 and 2022. And then then we'll we'll look and and we'll see if it's any improvement off of of what your existing work has, which is still largely looking at past results. Even if you're looking at sharp ratios, you know, look, there's some signal in past results, but it's still past results. Andy, I've got one quick question. I know you've got some more to ask, Joe, but just, Joe, just uh, again, I apologize. I haven't read the book yet, but from your experience, and I think we both share the view of reversion to mean uh, as being a natural cyclical path hopefully around a secular performance of good performance of managers. But what would you say is the average half-life of above mean performance that you would back 
for a manager before that reversion to mean kicks in? I guess the answer is going to differ by each one. But in the round, what do you think the persistency period is? In the round, it's 500 days. And in other words, adding more data does not help the projection going forward. Um, and I do talk a little bit about that in the book. And I can't say why that is. I also know that if I, if I data fit prior stuff, I might find out that 530 days is the, sure. you know, was, was the best thing to start at 2023. But then I know that that's wrong going, right? It's, it's too exact. I can tell you that other quants I've talked to seem to also support the idea that there are market regimes that go on and that over two-year periods, you're hopefully catching the end of one and the start of another so that you're getting a blend of yeah. all the uh, PM skills. So uh, that that's what I found. And I have found that it starts becoming predictive once you have six months of data or, you know, like I say, 125 observations, and then you fill in those other, you know, 275 with s simply the mean, and they get replaced each time you get a new daily okay. observation. Thanks very much, Joe. I appreciate you writing the book and exposing kind of these ideas and, and willing to come on and, and discuss them Myself and Robert really appreciate that. We, we always finish uh, with our guests by asking, is there a book, apart from your own books, uh, which you recommend or which was particularly pertinent for, for your career? Yeah, I would say, you know, certain from a, and then there's a recency bias to this, but hopefully that's also most helpful to uh, listeners. Um, I think most people that talk about what we talk about are familiar with either Michael Mobison, the, the success equation, which is, I, I think, a must starting point for anyone on this topic. Um, to Annie Duke, right, who has written a lot now on on decision making. But the recent one I wrote that's sort of of that realm um, is called The Biggest Bluff uh, by Maria Konnikova. And it, her third book, so she's a professional writer, which so she's good. She's good at writing, but she's got a really interesting story. She's a psychologist, a Harvard-trained psychologist who, or Harvard-educated psychologist, who takes up poker. And her background in psychology is very helpful for, you know, dealing with with human tells and the misogyny that that can go on in poker rooms, et cetera. But it's really a story about decision making. And she's very good at telling the story. And of course, because it's a, about poker and money, she didn't know if she would have the capital allocation gene or the risk tolerance gene. Uh, and it's just a really fun book. And uh, it, it's something that that. I read within the last year and, and really enjoyed. Yeah, that's a, that's a great book. And actually, Juan, uh, who's normally on the podcast, he would be very happy you said that because he's given it as reading material to our newest joiner and they're having a little bit, bit of a mini book club uh, on that book itself. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Joe. And, and thank you, Robert, also for coming and sharing your, your insights. Um, it's been a great discussion. Really appreciate you coming on. Thanks. Oh, thank you, Andy and Robert. I love talking about this. So thank you very much for having me. Brilliant. Thank you.